Canto 17 has quite a distinctive feel. It's a very descriptive canto, one that requires our imagination as much as following what's going on. Dante doesn't actually speak at all in this canto. It's very much focused on Virgil and what they see as it unfolds and what they experience too. And I think this is really significant. It's partly because it's a transitional canto. They're on the edge of descending into the deepest pit of hell. And so it's moving us in the narrative towards a new kind of stage, a new phase of perception. But it's doing so to elicit something for us as readers. It's not just telling us, it's showing us things in order that we are asked really to, to feel our way into what's going on, um, to experience it in some measure too, rather than just be told. And I think this must be part of the reason why at the end of Canto 16, Danto makes this hugely strong claim, saying that everything that he sees is true and he swears by the divine comedy. We will see it too, it's almost saying. We'll see the truth of it too if we're able to enter into this in-between space that's not just about being told, but is imaginatively entering into, entering into what's being described so we kind of feel it rising up within ourselves as well. So that's by way of introduction. Um, it opens uh, very directly with Virgil describing the appearance of the monster that's being conjured up out of the deep by Virgil throwing Dante's cord over the edge. You remember that Dante gives up his cord um, he becomes a little less defended, um, I think this means. Virgil throws this over the edge and now swimming up from the depths. Air, the air is, is it, if it's like water, it's a very mysterious kind of description, appears the monster and Virgil names it. He sees it straight away for what it is. He says this is the beast that flattens mountains, that breaks down walls that's the horror of humankind. Um, he's describing fraud. And I think fraud not just meant in the small way of conning people, of deceiving people, but fraud meant in the biggest possible way where everything in creation is perverted and turned for human ends in an isolated, selfish, um, completely disconnected from what's good um, and what's loving and what's kind. It's the full-on narcissism that I was wondering um, can help us understand this third stage of hell that we're now about to enter. Um, that meant in the technical sense of the person who um, is so lost they in a way don't even really know that others exist and um, they can't feel um, the love of others and so are locked and trapped into a state of mind that constantly turns in on itself. Um, it's the struggle to love yourself, to be able to get over yourself and see others um, and so um, is this particularly desperate state. So Virgil names um, the monster right from the from the get-go. He's not named quite yet but he's called Gerilon, Gerion. He's a monster bought in from 
ancient mythology where he was a giant um, who lived um, in nature. And now Dante um, uses um, that sort of starting point to reimagine, to re-see Geryon now. And what were shown um, in the canto is a creature made up of three parts. Um, we're told that his head is like a charming human face, um, looks completely benign. And then we look a bit further um, along his body and we see that it's painted in rather alluring, beautiful colours. We're told um, it's like arabesques um, and fine designs and that Ariadne never wove a more beautiful textile. Um, but this is an unsettling description because, of course, Ariadne um, was cursed by the gods um, because she shared in this hubris, which we've already seen um, in the previous cantos, of someone who got seduced by their own capacity to make beautiful things um, and so felt they could outshine the gods and became disconnected from the gods. So. Um, Geryon's back is this seductive part of himself and sure enough it leads to the sting in his tail quite literally um, which is described as like a scorpion sort of flipping around um, waiting to to poison you um, and this is a very powerful allegory of what fraud is like um, that it begins with a kind of seduc seduction promises the earth but actually has this terrible sting in its tail but before we continue with what's going to happen between Dante and Virgil and Geryon, um, there's a pause because Dante notices that there's another group of souls right on the edge of um, this seventh round before the final plunge. Um, and Virgil says to him, go and see who they are to complete your knowledge of this part of hell. Um, we might say to fulfill his initiation um, that has enabled him not just to see, you might say, objective states of mind, but through this direct knowledge, um, which the journey through hell, the descent, actually allows to know how these states of mind do and don't relate to his own inner state, um, so that he's able to navigate his way through hell, but unlike all the souls he finds there, not get stuck, not get lost. So it's a, it's, a, it's a pregnant phrase Virgil uses when he says to complete. Um, it's to bring to completion, um, to, you might say, finish the lesson um, in this sense of direct awareness, direct wisdom of all that um, he's encountered in hell. And so he steps out. Interestingly, we're told at this point that they've made a right turn again. They're not following um, the divine path through hell, you might say, which is following the leftward track. Um, but this time they only take 10 steps. It's really striking when you get these little details. It's part of the realism of the Inferno. Um, but also um, it's telling us that unlike the deviation which they made before, where they moved right for the whole canto, when they were in the circle of the so-called heretics, those who had followed their path um, so much so that they'd become disconnected from God, um, they only have to take a sort of small detour this time. It's, it's got to be their detour so that they can encounter something inside themselves. Um, but they're much more aligned with God, you might say now. I think this is one of these details that gives us a sense of how the descent is enabling them um, to change. So they make this small detour 
and then Dante um, goes off to, to, to look at these um, souls who are right on the edge. Um, he doesn't say anything. It's also striking that he goes off on his own um, apart from Virgil. Um, all these details are starting to conjure up for us the memory of Dis. Do you remember that was the last time that Virgil left Dante on his own, when D Virgil went to encounter the demons that were um, packing um, the walls and the gates and the parapets of Dis? Um, Dante was left on his own, terrified. Well, this time Dante is able to move on his own towards these other souls. Um, he, again, he's got more of a sense of himself, um, more awareness, more wisdom, enough to do so. And um, he says that he doesn't recognise any of these souls. Um, you know, they're so disfigured by whatever um, their state of mind is that they're not recognisable at all. Um, they're described as sitting on the ground. Dante does know that each of them is wearing a great pouch um, full of money, a purse, um, and each has um, a, her a heraldic emblem upon it. Um, you know, a white goose on a, on a blue background, other animals on coloured backgrounds. Um, and the souls are sitting static, staring at their purses. And this shows us um, what um, the final sin of this round is. You know, if um, someone like um, Bruno Latini's problem had been that his fame um, and his success in his art had ultimately disconnected him from God, and then we'd seen how... Um, uh, Rusted Cucci um, and the other fellows, the other noble fellows that Dante had just encountered, um, their kind of obsession with their own fame had disconnected from them from God. Well, now we meet the individuals whose obsessions with money straight up, you know, not even wanting to make anything, not even wanting um, to achieve anything, uh, just money, pure and simple, um, has so gripped them in their souls um, that they're now stuck sat staring at their purses and you know perverting even the heraldry even the nobility even the virtue they might have um, in so doing one of the commentators um, uh, makes this very profound remark i think that um, these usurers um, are like unmoved movers um, you know usury in life um, of itself doesn't achieve anything but what it does is it draws in people either out of need um, or out of greed um, and that's how it creates um, its movement in the world um, that's how it makes new worlds you might say out of um, this borrowing and lending and um, this of course is a, a horrible kind of diminution even perversion of God who in Aristotle is described as the unmoved mover but God in Aristotle is the unmoved mover because in Dante's view, God showers gifts. God just gives. And it's that love um, and showering and delight that causes the whole universe to move, that causes people to move towards God. Um, so, again, it's another reflection of why usury is so very high risk, um, particularly when you think about it for us, um, whose now whole world really is founded upon usury. And it's not just that it creates unnatural worlds that lose touch with the pulse of life. You know, in part for the goods, that's part of its entrapment. Um, but also now we're learning um, that it, it's, it's motion, what causes people to gravitate more and more around it, um, is not actually love, it's not actually gift, um, but it's this complex mix of need and greed. 
Um, it's not a simple thing to untangle. Um, in a way, that's partly why Dante must encounter it, must see it for what it is um, in the round. And only then can he learn, you know, maybe we can learn, begin to learn a little bit about how to navigate a way through um, this quality, um, this habit, um, this um, way now that our world is so profoundly shaped. Um, one of the usurers does speak out. He's called Reginaldo. Um, we do know something about him. Um, in particular, we know that um, his son was so um, uh, horrified by his father's um, exploitation of people um, that he built um, a chapel um, uh, in penance, um, which actually became a chapel where Giotto um, painted um, uh, some of his best-known frescoes and has actually been called um, one of the most beautiful spaces, one of the most beautiful interiors um, in the whole of Christendom. You know, so there's a sort of vague echo there um, that if you do um, see usury for what it is, then something beautiful can perhaps come out of it in the end. Um, but that doesn't happen here. Um, Dante just sees these souls in their stuckness, um, in their distress. Um, he describes them as being like dogs um, infested with fleas, and they're just constantly sort of biting and scratching and hitting themselves to try and ease their discomfort. Um, that is their trapped state of mind. You know, they can't co-create, and they can only self-isolate, um, and that is the profundity of this sin. As if to emphasise that, just as Dante turns round to return um, to Virgil, um, Reginaldo's tongue is said like flips out of his mouth like an ox's tongue. Um, this is the sort of the bestial disfiguring um, that they've become. But they're left. Dante hasn't had a conversation with them. He returns to Virgil, sensing that he must get back there in time. And what we see now is Virgil sort of in full command. Um, we're told that he's already on the strong back of Gerilon. Um, it's a very, very different scene from this, um, you know, where Virgil had been stymied and they'd had to wait, both of them in fear and trembling, for the great angel of the Lord to appear and kind of rescue them with a power that they didn't understand. Well, now Virgil has seen things and drawing on his own wisdom, his own capacities, he's able to um, command Gerilon. It's very striking that he speaks to Gerilon kindly throughout the canto. Um, he asks Gerilon, for example, um, to um, let them ride on his back and so descend into the deeper reaches of hell. Um, when they get going, um, he says to Gerilon, remember you've got a living soul on your back and move slowly. And the description of them descending into the depths um, is described um, like a great navigator um, controlling a boat. We're told that Gerilon backs off from the edge, um, he turns around, and then he descends in great circles. Um, Dante is terrified during this descent. Um, he clutches ever more tightly. Um, he buries his face in Gerilon's back. When he does venture to look down, he just sees um, the walls of hell closing in. He hears screams. He sees flames. Um, it terrifies him all the more. But it contrasts with Virgil's composure and his control of Gerilon um, as they move down. And, you know, it raises the question of what Virgil has learned. Um, and 
just highlights the fact that Virgil too is learning through this his second descent into hell. Um, in parenthesis, I think this is as much about Virgil's own transformation as it is Dante's, um, that often plays second fiddle to Dante's illumination. Um, but in this canto, we get a chance to contemplate it all the more. I think what Virgil has learnt um, is to see through fraud, um, to, three, to see through all that um, Gerilon stands for, and to recognise that this is actually more powerful than all the fraudulent deception, the bullying behaviour, um, the terror, the fear um, that this kind of um, human being, this kind of soul can inflict upon others. Um, it's a quiet steadiness um, that holds on to what's good and true, um, even when everything around seems to be um, full of poison um, and sin. That now Virgil is able to command in himself. And Gerilon recognises that. You know, the bully at the end of the day can see when the person they're trying to control, actually, whatever they do to them, and they may do terrible things to them, but whatever do they do to them, they haven't got their um, victim really under their control. They can always hold on to a pure and true part of themselves. Um, you know, it's a bit like when you read of, I know, victims of the worst atrocity, like people being marched off to the camps um, during the Holocaust um, in the Second World War. And what's also remembered alongside the horror are these extraordinary tales where people kept their humanity. You know, they turned to the chambers so that someone else might be free. And they knelt down and helped someone, even though... Um, the guard was about to strike them, if not kill them. Um, it's that quality that I think Virgil has discovered um, inside himself now. And so he's able to face down Gerion and ask him um, to carry Dante and himself down to the deeper reaches of hell. Another reflection on this must be might be like, um, it's a bit like um, the hero's journey. Um, where the hero steps out um, in their own kind of naivety um, and they make their mistakes. They get beaten like Virgil was before the gates of Dis, but they keep at it and they learn from their mistakes. They learn from the descent and it becomes an ascent so that, as it were, they can bring back not just a souvenir from their travels, but the real treasure itself and pass that on, which is what Virgil is doing in this canto to Dante. Um, I, I think this is also echoed in the imagery that um, comes towards the end of the canto when they um, do climb off Gerilon's back because Gerilon is very strikingly said to have shot off at that moment like an arrow having moved so beautifully and um, steadily um, in their descent. Um, and I think that um, this is Gerilon being furious. Um, Dante the poet says that he's furious like the falcon um, that um, hasn't managed to capture its prey. Um, and I wonder whether the imagery of falconry is invoked because, you know, the falcon is hooded um, before his flight. Um, he's not allowed to just behave in, from his own nature, um, but without sight, um, he's controlled by the falconer. Um, and Virgil's a bit like the falconer here um, because he can see and the falcon can't. Um, he can control um, this uh, monstrous bird 
um, in its artificial flight. I'd even go so far as to wonder whether Virgil in this canto is a bit like Christ before Pilate. You know, Pilate seeming having all the power, um, and yet Christ in his silence asking what truth really is, um, controls Pilate, even as Christ is sent to um, his own um, death, descends into hell itself as well. Um, Virgil has a kind of, not direct parallel, but an echo of this quality. Um, there's something quite Christ-like about Virgil in this canto, um, which I think um, is going to be important um, further down the line. If that is something about Virgil, in a way, the one pole of this canto, um, the pole that sees, that understands, that can draw on its own wisdom, that can overcome fear um, with clarity of sight. Um, Dante, the pilgrim in this canto, doesn't exhibit those qualities. Um, he doesn't cry and faint um, as he had um, earlier in hell, um, but he doesn't speak um, and he stresses his fear many, many times um, as they climb on to Geryon's back and move off um, in this almost sort of dance-like way. Dante himself is left in sort of full terror and he remembers two mythical figures. He remembers um, Phaeton, um, the son um, of the god who um, steered the sun across the sky um, and fell um, because he burnt everything. Um, and he remembers to Icarus, the son of Daedalus, um, whose wings um, held together by wax, again moved too close to the sun and melted and fell. Um, Dante gives um, uh, really significant words to Daedalus, Daedalus as he recalls these mythical figures and their fall, their horror, their fear, um, as they felt themselves tumbling. And when he says Daedalus called out to his son, your path is wrong. Now it's really significant because Dante, the pilgrim at this moment, is not sure whether their path is right or wrong. Um, but in a way, what comes to his mind, what comes to his imagination, these stories about the old mythical figures that ascended um, too quickly, um, might give him some comfort because of course he's not ascending too quickly. He's actually descending rather carefully. Um, and so he is actually following the right path um, encountering things within himself in order that he too might be able to see as Virgil seems to be able to see so clearly um, and um, but in in his horror of the of the descent he doesn't remember that right now um, but I think that's what Dante the poet is indicating to us again the descent um, is actually strangely the right path when it grows and awakens something inside you they reach the bottom um, of their descent, um, where right by the jagged cliffs, um, Gerilon um, lets them off his back and then shoots off like an arrow. And it leaves you kind of wondering right at the end um, what this canto um, has really been about. Um, again, I think it's about a contrast between, on the one hand, Virgil's clarity, Virgil's wisdom that he's now gained, having made his mistakes before the walls of Dis. Um, and Dante's still learning that, um, you know, he's been able to step out a little bit, take these 10 steps. Um, he's learned a lot from the older rounds of hell. Um, but now as they enter the eighth round, he's got a whole new set um, of insights to learn, new souls to see, new states of minds to conjure with and reflect upon in himself. And with its um, invitation ourselves to imagine the truth of this canto, you know, with its descriptions that leave 
a lot of questions at one level, but a lot of space for discovery for us as readers. I think we're sort of invited to move in between Virgil and Dante in some way, um, you know, to, to wonder what's going on, to reflect on our own fear, um, you know, maybe given the prevalence of usury even in our own world, um, how we try to find a way between this mix of good and ill um, so that we become co-creators with the divine, not lost from the divine, um, as um, clearly can so easily happen. Um, and so this canto is not just a transitional canto in terms of the journey, but might be one that impacts upon us, that becomes a kind of tr transitional canto for us, readying us as readers um, for even worse terrors and horrors that are now about to unfold before us. You might say that it's inviting us to learn a kind of fourfold vision, um, to use Blake's expression. Um, you know, this is the vision where you can hold on to what you do know, but also what you don't know. Um, you can hold on to the fear, but also know that thin um, but constant light of love. Um, you can see the outer form of things, you know, much like Gerilon the monster um, with his strange threefold shape. Um, but also see the inner truth of that, and so speak and command um, and find the way, as Virgil has done, um, holding on to the kind of inner wisdom and not just being overwhelmed by the outer sight. That's this kind of multi-dimensional sight, which I think this canto is powerfully pointing towards. That said, we must stay with Dante the Pilgrim and... Remember that he felt fear in this canto. Um, the edginess was stressed a lot in this canto. Um, the outer edginess of Gerilon the monster clutching with his paws to the edge of the cliff while his toe, his tail float, floated in free space. Um, the edginess of this final group of usurers who are right on the cliff face before the final plunge into hell. Um, and stay with that inner transitional state then as well knowing something um, a bit more now, but being prepared to stay undefended and open um, to what might come further as Dante and Virgil leave Gerilon the monster who shoots off. Um, they're in a terrible place again, where there's edgy cliffs, where there's flame and where there's more souls screaming out in distress. <laughs>